Good morning. I was just thinking as we were singing those songs and taking the Lord's Supper and as Kevin was praying that certainly it's possible that there is someone here either in person or online and um, you would not say that you're a Christian. You would, you would say that there's a lot about this you don't know or understand um, and I just want you to know we are absolutely ecstatic that you're here or that you're joining us online. And at times, Christianity can feel sort of like a stiff arm to people. And that is the last thing in the world that we want. If you are here and you have never placed your faith in Christ, welcome. Today, I love this phrase in the New Testament, today is the day of salvation. You're being invited to be a part of God's family and uh, the community of faith. So as you hear from the scriptures today, this invitation, I pray that uh, it will uh, cultivate in you a heart of faith and that you'll, you'll sing these songs and you'll take that meal and uh, you'll join in the community of faith belonging to that in a beautiful way. Well, we are uh, at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We're finishing up what uh, Jeff read earlier in, in kind of anticipation of communion. And before we get to the text, I want to give you a sense of what Paul was doing with this text when he wrote it, in the time that he wrote it. And I hope that you'll see that our day is really not all that different from his day. There are some differences for sure, but in terms of what was actually going on, I think there's a lot that we can relate to. Let me ask you this first. What if an audio video file surfaced somewhere on social media, and in that audio or video, you were featured saying and doing things that you would never, ever say or do. But every indication from that file would say, it was you. That'd be pretty disturbing, wouldn't it? It's actually a reality in our day. It's called deep fake technology. You've probably heard of it. About 25 years ago, this technology began to emerge. It became probably on more global recognition in 2016. It, it uses artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning algorithms to take actual information about a person, what they say, what they do, video, all that kind of stuff. And then it manipulates that to basically say or do whatever it wants to. That's a real thing. Earlier this year, there was a deep fake video that came out of President Vladimir Zelensky urging his Ukrainians to surrender. And fortunately, they caught it and took it down. But it has really struck fear in the hearts of a lot of people all over the world. Like, what could you do with something like that? The greatest threat of deepfakes is disinformation. 
And what disinformation actors really want, this is from Aviv Avadya, is not for you to question more, it's for you to question everything. I read on uh, a website, deepfakenow.com, deepfakes are where truth goes to die. So this idea of presenting stuff that looks real but isn't, disinformation, misinformation, that is the challenge not only of our day, but it was the challenge of Paul's day. And far greater then the threat of a digital deep fake is a theological deep fake. And that is exactly what he's addressing with these verses that we're going to look at today. Now, here's the backdrop theologically for what Paul is trying to communicate. First of all, there are shared assumptions. If you look through all of human history, generally speaking, I know there are exceptions, but all of humanity has generally agreed on three things. First of all, that there is the existence of a supreme being, a higher power, or some kind of force out there. Just generally speaking, again, I know there are some people who would not agree with that, but, but for the most part, the vast majority of all of humanity have agreed to that assumption. Secondly, there is an agreement that there is brokenness in this world and in the people who inhabit it. It's called by all kinds of different names, and there's all kinds of explanations for why it's broken the way it is. But one thing I think most people agree with is this world is broken. Lastly, there has been a sense throughout all of history that there is an afterlife that somehow corresponds to this life. Now, all I'm saying here is this is the common ground. These are the things that we all kind of agree on. And then where we go from there, that's where you see a lot of divergence. But we start with that as the backdrop. Then, in response to those assumptions, we have gospels. Messages of what people consider to be good news that try to make sense of those assumptions. So mankind has come up with a lot of gospels of its own, and uh, I want to put them in three categories for us this morning. Mysticism, universalism, and humanism. These didn't just appear last year or in the last decade or in the last century. These belief systems were in place when Paul wrote this letter. So mysticism that is the general idea that we are all one with the cosmos and everything that you see around you is really more of an illusion than any kind of reality. And the more you can come to terms with that, the more at peace you will be. So for mysticism, there is no person either here or there. Secondly, universalism. That's the idea that all paths lead to God. Have you heard that? 
So really, as we look around at all of man's gospels, all the answers to these big life questions, we just go, hey, you know what? I mean, we may think differently on that. And actually, our ideas, our ideas may be completely contradictory, but it's okay because sincerity is really what matters. Truth isn't really that important. Now, in light of the brokenness that we all agree upon, the problem with universalism is there's no justice. Right? What do you do with what's wrong with the world? Universalism says it'll all be fine. Don't worry about it. Lastly, humanism. That's the idea that Generally speaking, we are good people, and so just be a good person. Just do your best. Just be moral. Just be kind. Just be ethical. And if you'll do all that, you'll be okay. The question is, how good does anyone have to be? Can anybody answer that question? The problem with humanism is there's no assurance. Now, man's gospel, according to Paul, is energized, remember this, from the beginning of chapter 2, by the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. We didn't just come up with all this on our own. The enemy has constituted a deep fake theologically, and we've all bought into it. Humanity at large. That's what Paul is correcting. Man's gospels, they either elevate human ability or minimize human responsibility. One way or the other. But all of man's gospels conflict with Scripture. Historical Christianity, and just take this in, for 2,000 years, God's people have sat around together looking at this passage and, and have been reminded again of what is true, which we must understand if we are to find and experience genuine spiritual life. So historical Christianity has spoken definitively to those assumptions that I mentioned and Paul presented this as the one and only gospel. Just write the note down, Galatians 6, one through, or I'm sorry, Galatians 1, 6 through 12. And you can see how he thought about other gospels. He begins his letter to the Romans with the phrase, the gospel of God. Or you could say, God's good news. This is the original this is the truth against which every other idea, every other concept ought to be measured. It is the gospel. And the gospel is four things. First of all, it is documentation. It records literal history, things that actually happened. There were people there, people who saw it, people who experienced it. The gospel records that. It also is a proclamation. It's an announcement that God has graciously intervened in light of humanity's problems. Third, it's an invitation. It's an opportunity to respond 
to God's good news. It's an opportunity to be reconciled with God. And as we have already seen, our greatest problem is being separated from God because of our sin. Lastly, it's a confirmation. It's an assurance that God's good news is trustworthy, that you can rely on it. Our passage this morning, just these three verses, is one of the greatest summaries of the gospel that we have in our New Testament. It is a cornerstone of our understanding of what salvation is all about. And as we'll see, Paul is contrasting those gospels of humanity that have been created throughout history, and he is exposing the theological deep fakes that have emerged in every era of time. He wants to underscore the truth. So let's read the truth together. All right? I want you, it's up on the screen there. This is Ephesians 2 8 through 10. Read it with me, please. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, that first phrase in verse 8 that answers the question, how are we saved? Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. Those three words are about as important a words, set of words as we have in our Bible. Now, having to be saved assumes that we were in peril, Right? I mean, it would be kind of silly to say you need to be saved and there's really nothing wrong. Paul explained that we were spiritually dead, that we were striving for life apart from God, looking for life in all the wrong places and doing it independently. He said that we were by nature children of wrath. That's judgment. That's consequence for rebellion or defiance against God. That is the true condition of humanity. And if we minimize that in any way, if we dismiss it, excuse it, neglect it, then we are leaving whoever it is we're talking to. Or if we think that about ourselves, we remain in the peril of this passage. You aren't saved simply because you just decided that you were or that it really wasn't real to begin with, that you really didn't need to be saved. Like what we think about it doesn't make it real. It's real all by itself. Paul seems to think that being saved is crucial, central to the truth of the gospel. He does phrase this, uh, you have been saved. That is past tense, but the, the way the grammar reads here, it's past tense. It's a completed action, but with ongoing results. 
So there is a moment of conversion. There is a moment of literally being saved, made right with God. But that isn't just a one and done. It is, has ongoing effect in your life and in mine. And that carries on through the entirety of life. Now, if we're wondering how that work, how that salvation is accomplished, he says by grace through faith. So what is grace? Grace is favor. And I just want, I want you to listen as if you've never heard this before in your life. And I want you to know this so well that if someone comes up to you on the sidewalk when you leave this place, you can explain this. Because there's nothing more important in this life than this right here. Grace is God's favor, unmerited, unearned, undeserved. That literally means it's a gift that you could never get all by yourself. That is how you're saved, by grace. God's kindness toward you. The recipient of grace does nothing to merit it. And if we did, then the goodness that we received would be something other than grace. Paul says that in Romans eleven six, If it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It can't be. I think it's difficult for all of us to really grasp and appropriate this idea of grace. And I think it's because there is so much ungrace around us in our homes in our neighborhoods, social media, at the workplace, even in our churches. I think we naturally project the ungrace that we have experienced throughout our lives on God. I don't know if you've seen Marvel's recent uh, film, Thor, Love and Thunder, it's interesting how the gods are portrayed in that movie. They are self-absorbed and debaucherous. The villain in the film, he's called the God Butcher. He's basically going after and giving the gods what he thinks they deserve because they let him down. It, doesn't that sound familiar when you think about the world's view of God, can't trust him, he's a control freak, he's fickle, he's just really all about himself. That's the deep fake of the world as it relates to God's identity. I heard a song years ago by Skillet called Savior, and there's this beautiful line in there. It says, it's time to redefine your deophobic mind. A.W. Tozier says, whatever comes to our mind when we think about God, that is the most important thing about us. So what do you think about God? God. 
And where do you get your information? He is gracious. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says, Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. That means certainly God is holy. Certainly God is just. He will exercise wrath against sin. But all of those who have trusted in him, he can't love you any more, any more than he does right now. I would even say that, I mean, John 3.16, God so loved the world that if you're an unbeliever today, he loves you. He wants you to know that he loves you. And he wants you to cry out to him to exercise his love toward you for your benefit. That's really the catch of this. No one experiences the full extent of God's love without asking for it. That's what it means to be saved by grace through faith. The faith is the asking. St. Augustine said this centuries ago, God gives where he finds empty hands. It's a beautiful picture. Faith is our way of asking God to love us his way. Not our way, not on our terms, his way. That's all that faith is doing. It's finally surrendering and saying, I've been trying and failing. God, will you do for me what I cannot do for myself? That is a heart of faith. Now, faith is something we all possess. I would describe it this way, the combined intellectual understanding of agreement with and trust in an object of some kind. You've probably heard the illustration of a chair. You can look at the chair. You can say, that's a chair. You can say, I think that chair is meant to be sat in. I think if someone sat in that chair, it would probably hold them. You can say all of that and not express an inch of faith in that chair. Faith would mean you have to sit down. There is saving faith and there is futile faith. Saving faith is placing faith in the right object the only object that can save you. Faith placed in anything else, including ourselves, which is where we usually put it, that's futile faith. That's faith that leads to death. And that's how it's presented in the scriptures. Habakkuk 2.4, which is also repeated in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10. The righteous shall live by faith. That means that the righteous gain life through faith, and they live life through faith. The unrighteous, on the other hand, die by their faith in themselves. They have decided they know better than God. 
how to find life. In our spiritual deadness, we place our faith in something or someone other than God. Faith in any object other than Christ is dead. It can bear no fruit. It is futile. Salvation comes by grace when God becomes the singular object of our faith. That's what that first phrase in Ephesians 2.8 is telling us. It doesn't come from simply thinking a certain way about God. It comes by willfully responding to the gift of relationship. It is reaching out to God with empty hands. We could paraphrase this verse by saying, God saved you by his grace when you believed. That's how you were saved. Now, Paul is concerned that they didn't get it and we don't get it. So he reinforces his summary with some clarification in the second half of verse 8. This is not your own doing. Just in case you didn't get that whole saved by grace through faith thing, he says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Point two in your outline, you were not only saved by grace through faith, you were saved from the consequences of your best efforts. See, we tend to think we're saved from our worst failures, and that is most definitely true. But that's not usually where we get hung up. It's easier to say, I really blew it. It's a lot harder to say that even the best stuff that I have produced in my life is worthy of condemnation. Even our best falls short of God's holiness, God's perfection, God's magnificence. Our best efforts still declare our need. I tried to sort of paraphrase this statement just to be absolutely clear about what Paul is saying. So let's put it all together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, which is to say, that's the and, your salvation, that's the word that this is pointing back to. Your salvation, that's the big concept that Paul is trying to get at here. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, which is to say, first of all, your salvation is not your own doing. You literally contributed nothing. Some ways that ought to be freeing (laughs) because there wasn't anything to mess up, right? Performance is not the issue. Your salvation is not your own doing. Your salvation is the gift of God. That tells you a whole lot about him. Also, your salvation is not a result of works. Just as if you didn't get that whole, it's not your own doing, it's not a result of works. We're going to talk more about works in a little bit. So that no one can take credit for their salvation. 
that is important to God because God alone can give life and no one else, nothing else. Now, if we think about contrast of that statement, like think about what the world tells us, generally speaking. You're not that bad. Come on. Don't be so hard on yourself. Actually, you're pretty good. If you would just let more of your goodness out. And if we just give it our best, everything will work out all right in the end. God knows how hard we try, and he's glad to help those who help themselves. You ever heard anybody say that? That is a theological deep fake. God never said any of that. You will not find that anywhere in the pages of this book. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, and he's equating sin with works. The wages of sin is what? Death, not life. So we need to be saved. That's the peril, right? We need to be saved from the deadly consequences of our sin. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. Speaking of himself, there is no other way. There isn't an alternative gospel. There is no good news other than this. And in line with this idea of being saved from the consequences of our best efforts, I think Paul is saying that the wages of our works, regardless of how good they might be, are no better than that of our sin. When Paul says works, he's speaking of any human condition or accomplishment by which one thinks to gain standing or privilege before God. It's anything at all that you might hold out to him and say, see, I deserve life. You owe me. It's sobering that not only were our independent works inadequate for gaining salvation, but they were adequate cause for our condemnation. If salvation were a result of our works, then that would make us the architects or the engineers or the designers of our salvation. And that is offensive to a holy God. We are in no position to take credit for it because we did nothing to receive it. To somehow take credit for the greatest gift ever given is to discredit the unspeakable cost of that gift and the incalculable kindness of the gift giver. That is why 
No one must take credit but God for our salvation. It just simply isn't true. Now, far from contributing to any kind of good works to our salvation, Paul says this in verse 10. We are his workmanship. Our works did nothing, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Um, If you've been around here for any length of time, you know this is one of my favorite words in all of the Bible, but that workmanship word is poema which means creation. It's where we get the word poem. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. You could say that we are his creation created in Christ Jesus. F.F. Bruce says we are his work of art, his masterpiece. That is how God sees you. That is what he is about in your life. Maxie Dunham, who uh, a commentator and scholar said this, redemption means much more than the repair of the ravages and ruptures resulting from humanity's fall. It is the creation of a new humanity and a new world, which has previously existed only in the mind and purpose of God. This is his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God does the making and the saving, period. By the way, I I do want to mention Jeff uh, highlighted Foundations 301, where we're looking at our gifting, our makeup, and how God might use us to build up the body of Christ. That's what Foundations 301, that's, that's what it's all about. And it's all about this idea of God continuing the good work that he began in us. So I hope you'll take some time and attend that. So God does the making and the saving for what? This is how he finishes. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were saved by grace through faith. We were saved from the consequences of our best efforts. And we were saved for good works. Klein Snodgrass says, salvation is not from works or by works, but it is surely for works. And it's important that we get that in the right order. You are saved by grace through faith. You get life, and then you get to work, not the other way around. The relationship we enter with God by grace through faith involves in us his redemptive work, and then he involves us in his redemptive work. In all the world around us, all the places that we go. And there is an oughtness about it. when, when we talk so clearly about grace, you will typically hear uh, critique around easy believism. And it's the idea that, well, you're just telling people that they can believe and then do whatever they want to. And that's not what the scripture says. It just says that you are not made right with God based upon your works. 
But God has every expectation in the world that if you are saved, you will do good works. Uh, Luther, not Luther, Calvin, one of those guys. This is a great phrase. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's that once you have life, then you have the ability to do good works, and you're expected to do so. And if you don't, you don't lose your salvation. Here's what happens. The Father disciplines those whom he loves. He's going to get in your grill, and he's going to help you grow up, and he's going to help you make the good works of the kingdom a priority in your life. That's what he does with the children whom he loves. Works cannot produce salvation, but they are truly the byproduct of salvation. So when you hear us around here talking with you, challenging you, equipping you to do the good work of the church, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's heart to reach the world with this message. I hope that you will always hear it that way. When we ask you to work in the borough, when we ask you to lead a community group, when we ask you to go on a mission trip, this is why right here. It is the salvation of our God. I want to ask you to um, take a moment and respond. We always ask the question, so what? Like, what does this matter? How do I apply it to my life? And I... I want to ask you to do something very specific. This is going to sound a little old school, but so be it. I, I want to ask you to bow your heads, to close your eyes, to focus intently upon the Lord, be attentive to him. You have heard the gospel today. And it... It offers you an opportunity to respond. So, as I said earlier, whether you're here or online, you may have never, ever, ever trusted in this truth, trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And so, if that is the case, I want to invite you to come to God with empty hands. Ask him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. Agree with him that you are a sinner and in need of forgiveness. And then thank him that he sent his son to die in your place so that you could be made right with God. You can ask him today. And we are promised everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you have drifted. That could look like a thousand things. But the gospel is good news for you. 
because it means your drifting didn't cause you to lose anything except the beautiful life that God has for you as a person of faith. So your response to the gospel might be to ask God to renew your walk of faith today. Not to give you salvation again, but to help you walk in newness of life, the life that you already have. And then lastly, there are some of you who you're walking in faith and looking ahead And perhaps you might ask God to show you the good works that he has for you. To get in the mission. To be about helping others learn the gospel of God. I loved that we sang this lyric. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. What a great prayer. Take a moment, respond however you see fit, and then I'll pray for us. Definitive moments like these are helpful for all of us. Um, But again, nobody's looking. This is just between you and the Lord. But if you asked Christ to save you today, would you just pop your hand up? Father in heaven, you are so good. Better than we could ever imagine. But I thank you that you do give us glimpses of your goodness. Thank you for the grace gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord, whether we have received that gift 
for the first time today or whether we are renewing our heart toward that gift today, Lord, would you do a great work? Would you help us to walk in newness of life today and every day after until you return? And then, Lord, would you use this church as a megaphone for this beautiful gift of salvation that you have made available to humanity? We thank you for that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.